you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, welcome to City on a Hill. Uh, as we share, my name's Dan Patterson, and since I too am a newcomer, it still is a huge privilege, particularly perhaps if you feel somewhat out of place amidst the sea of Christians around you, to offer you a profound welcome from Jesus Christ himself. Uh, right here at City on a Hill, we're in the midst of a sermon series called Left and Right, which is exploring how Jesus speaks into some of the most controversial questions in our cultural moment. And this series isn't really designed to reinforce the tribalism that's so endemic as it plays out around the world, but rather we're hoping to subvert it, offering in the Christian story a better way of making sense of what's happening in our culture, as well as offering for those who follow Jesus a compelling path forward. Today's subject, transgender rights. Now, as we seek to enter into a conversation that is this fraught culturally, to those of you who feel out of place in your own body, right off the bat, I want you to know that you are profoundly loved. The Bible speaks of God as being the one who sees us. God sees you. He knows about torments and tears, the things that happen behind closed doors. And Scripture says of Jesus that a bruised reed he would not break and that a smoldering wick he would not snuff out. So to those who are struggling in these vulnerable areas, Jesus' posture is gentle. He doesn't come as an anvil of truth to beat people into submission. No, he doesn't come to score cheap political points nor to reduce people that he loves to comedic punchlines. Jesus comes to be with us. He comes to comfort us. He comes to disciple us. He comes to offer us hope through the gospel of his own blood. So as we wade today into a deeply personal and political subject, as I try and bring the Christian story into conversation with the lived experience of the gender, transgender community, no doubt at times some of you may disagree with me. And thankfully, I'm a visitor, and that's okay. 
More thankfully, this sermon is only intended to be a small part of a larger conversation that will keep playing out in GCs through the week. And if you're watching this live, you can actually send in your own questions with the code on the screen for the Q&A after the sermon. But before we get to opening up that Q&A, let me map out where we are going. Because in speaking or spelling out a Christian response to the transgender movement, to transgender rights, I think it's necessary that we explore three broad questions. Number one... What is the transgender movement? And number two, how does the Christian story teach about gender? And number three, how should Christians uh, navigate transgender rights? What is the transgender movement? Well, in 2014, a full year before the U.S. Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states, a Time magazine's April edition said this on the front cover, the transgender tipping point. America's next civil rights frontier. For whilst the T and the LGBT acronym had been relatively quiet during the gay rights push, and now that the culture had been largely swayed on sexuality, well, now attention shifted to gender. The claim was that now is the transgender moment. And in retrospect, this was an incredibly prescient story. For just eight years on, the cultural conversation around gender has moved at such a dizzying pace that it's filtered into nearly every area of private and public life. From celebrity transitions to the rewriting of laws and corporate policies to the inclusion of trans people in gender-specific clubs, schools and sports, the March for Transgender Rights seems to have made tremendous progress. We would all rejoice at the fact that there seems now to be a greater public awareness of and compassion for the various challenges faced by transgender people, from social exclusion to bullying to domestic violence. And this has opened the door for people of goodwill everywhere to be able to help take steps to alleviate the mental health disaster amongst the transgender community, people who exhibit some of the highest depression and self-rate uh, levels, rates in any of the psychological literature, which when you look at it, it's a reality that should break our heart. But there is also a concern voiced by groups right across the cultural spectrum that the poor mental health of trans people is being weaponized by at least some trans activists to ram through policies that conflict with the rights of others, or to silence legitimate questions, or to promote a radical gender ideology that risks doing harm to vulnerable people. And with these concerns coming from career feminists who are passionate about protecting the hard-won progress of women, or from the LGB letters in the acronym, who draw their own sexual identity from a gender binary, well, sometimes what we need to do for the sake of clarity is actually parse out the different elements that make up the transgender movement. Perhaps the most helpful way to do this, to get a handle uh, on what's happening in our culture, is by looking at the transgender lexicon. For as storytelling creatures, language, it not only gives voice to our experience, but it ends up shaping the public conversation. So it's instructive to look now at how kids, in a bid to celebrate diversity and dissuade bullying, are being educated in public schools about gender identity. Q, the original teaching tool, the gender-bred person. Now, as you can see from the image behind me, what makes a person who they are is drawn from a range of factors. First, biological sex. Your biological sex is determined by your primary and secondary sex characteristics, 
chromosomes, XX, XY, genitalia, gonads, phenotypes, hormones, even body hair. And according to this teaching tool, you can either be male, female, or a third option, intersex. Now, medically speaking, intersex conditions describe a range of birth experiences from ambiguous male and female genitalia to chromosomal abnormalities to even a mismatch between one's internal reproductive organs and then their external genitals. In terms of the medical literature, doctors don't tend to refer to intersex people as a new norm or as a third sex, but rather as a DSD, a disorder of sexual development from the normal male-female binary. The Intersex Society of North America even say this on their website. They say intersex people are perfectly comfortable adopting either a male or female gender identity, and they're not seeking a genderless society or to label themselves as members of a third gender class. That's biological sex. Second, there is gender expression. And gender expression is how you show your gender outwardly, whether in line with social norms associated with your biological sex or in a non-conforming way, pushing back against the prevailing cultural stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. Third, sexuality, or who you are sexually and or romantically interested in, what we tend to call sexual orientation. This is where the LGB letters of the acronym come into play, lesbian, gay, and bisexual. But so far, almost none of this is new. What is new, really, to the last decade, historically speaking, is where the T comes in to the LGBT acronym, with the addition of a fourth category known as gender identity. You see, in the words of Rosario Butterfield, whereas your sexuality is all about who you want to go to bed with, your gender identity is all about who you want to go to bed as. Your identi uh, gender identity is your internal sense of gender, who you feel yourself to be, whether a man or a woman or other. To be transgender, then, by way of definition, means that your internal sense of gender does not match your external or biological sex. You might be a biological male, but you feel yourself to be something other than a man, whether a woman or, in the ideology of gender fluidity, something else along an ever-expanding spectrum. And what you'll discover, however, is that the label transgender community or transgender movement is actually quite amorphous, because every trans person has their own story, and many of them their own convictions merely meaning that knowing the lexicon, well, the evolution of this means that that offers you nothing by way of being able to pinpoint any particular person on an ideological map. We're not given to assume, because there are scores of trans people out there whose own story is ultimately worth hearing. And yet, even still, there are some distinguishable elements within the transgender movement that are worth breaking down to more helpfully know how to respond. On one end of the transgender spectrum, you have those who genuinely suffer from a dissonance between their biological sex and their gender identity. In the DSM-IV, the Standard Diagnostic Manual for Psychiatric Conditions, this condition used to be described as the gender identity disorder. But as one example of how cultural acceptance towards the transgender movement actually shapes and changes medical treatment, in May of 2013, with the release of the DSM-V, they no longer mark the dissonance itself as a psychiatric condition. 
Now the attention has shifted merely therapeutically to the emotional trauma associated with that incongruence. Now those who suffer acute distress because of their dissonance are diagnosed as having something called gender dysphoria, which the DSM-5 describes as a marked incongruence between one's experienced or expressed gender and their assigned gender or their biological sex of at least six months duration, and which causes significant distress. So the incongruence, distress, and of at least six months. That's gender dysphoria. Now, pre-2018, as the highest estimate, roughly 1 in 10,000 males and 1 in 20,000 females suffered from this condition, with symptoms tending to be diagnosed early in life, when kids were just between 4 and 5 years old. Think about that. A child in kindergarten feeling trapped in the wrong body. What a painful experience to come to terms with. Now, what causes this gender dysphoria? Is it nature? Is it nurture? Well, when it comes to nature, the most popular candidate for explaining the origins of gender dysphoria is what's called the brain sex theory. It's the notion that hormonal exposure in utero affects our neurodevelopment so that despite our biological sex, our brains can still exhibit more typically masculine or feminine attributes. Of course, this line of argumentation in the medical literature is actually a tip of the hat to the reality that there are, on the aggregate, genuine differences between men and women, biologically and psychologically. If you're married, that probably won't shock you. Which leads others, though, to opt for an explanation in nature, rather, uh, not in nature, sorry, but in nurture, arguing that gender identity stems simply from social conditioning, such that if we engineer society socially in a certain way, well, then these kind of differences would disappear, that you can explain a person's gender dysphoria simply by looking at their own story and their social environment. But simply put, the research into this area is so new that we don't have solid answers. Mark Yarhouse, an expert on emerging gender identities, he challenges any attempt at dogmatism well, where he says, an appropriate amount of humility can be found in saying, we don't know what causes gender dysphoria. What we do know is that according to the statistics, there are a few thousand Aussies whom God deeply loves, who themselves experience a deep discomfort within their own bodies and are most at risk of poor mental health outcomes, of depression, of suicide ideation, of self-harm. And they're the ones that are most in search of answers. That's here. On the other end of the transgender spectrum, you have the gender ideologues. These are people who themselves are rarely struggling psychologically, instead focusing their energy on being a voice for those who are becoming uh, activists in academia and online. Now, no doubt this is a noble cause. As a follower of Jesus, one who often spoke of being a voice for the voiceless or on the pursuit of justice, I resonate with the desire to call for justice. Only I feel compelled to part ways with these gender ideologues because of the story that they tell when it comes to sex and gender, departing from Jesus radically by offering both a different diagnosis of the problem and a different gospel as the answer. Central to the new gender ideology is the belief that gender, masculinity and femininity, and even sex, male and female, are merely social constructs. 
things that arise, not from any objective scientific observation or from our reality in biology, but rather from the subjective norms and categories that are imposed upon us by the elite in our culture. Cue then the gender unicorn, the new favoured transgender teaching tool. For in addition to the ideologue's critique that the gender-bred person looked too male by way of phenotype, the key concern causing this update was that the original teaching tool spoke of biological sex as a fixed scientific reality. Now, with the introduction of this biologically ambiguous gender unicorn, well, you see the change. Biological sex has now been swapped out for the phrase sex assigned at birth, a marker or a category designed to evoke suspicion of the oppressive ways that our culture forces its categories upon us. The take-home message for those who are listening to this teaching is that you are not who you are told by others. You are not even what your body says that you are, but you are who you say you are. And this devotion to what Carl Truman calls expressive individualism by these ideologues, it essentially leads to a low view of our bodies. As one transgender slogan goes, anatomy isn't destiny. Our bodies are just haunted machines in a new kind of Gnosticism. Or to adopt the language of one non-binary woman on the BBC, our bodies are just meat skeletons with no bearing on our authentic selves. Now, if you are here and you feel out of place in your body, if you feel out of place in the world, no doubt there would be a natural pull towards the trans community. Because people with a shared pain, people who endure similar challenges, they tend to bond in profound ways. But increasingly, those who run to the trans community for answers to their gender incongruity are being handed an ideological script. They're given a story about what's wrong and about the path to salvation. And that story goes something like this. Too long have you been suffocated by traditional morality and cultural stereotypes and gender binaries. True freedom, true fulfillment in life will only come when you break free of your biological prison, whether with gender-bending behaviors or medical interventions, so that you can fully embrace your authentic self. Now, this gospel of the ideologues is a zero-sum game. The body and binaries are the casualties. And to even question their strategy of affirming a person's gender incongruence is considered heresy to the ideologues. In her helpful book on this subject, Love Thy Body, Nancy Piercy notes that trans-affirming therapists insist that even exploring why a person has gender dysphoria, instead of immediately accepting it as the person's authentic self, is considered offensive, bigoted, and transphobic. In fact, here in Australia, in the state of Victoria, they've been the first to pass a law that effectively codifies this dogma. Now, whilst all Christians should be overwhelmingly supportive of banning the harmful and dangerous practices the conversion therapy bill was originally designed to tackle, the final language of this law, shaped unmistakably by the new gender ideology, it makes it illegal to engage in any practices that could be construed as harmful or seen to be attempting to change a person's gender identity. That means if you were here today and you feel out of place in your own body and you approached me as a Christian to ask for prayer that your mind would be able to come to terms and accept your biological sex, if I was to pray that with you, that's illegal. It means that parents 
are no longer able to refuse to provide cross-sex hormones for their transgender kids. That's illegal. It means that even trained psychiatrists could be prosecuted if they suggested a person's gender incongruence, the difference between their body and their mind, is a psychiatric condition. That's now, in Victoria, illegal. But that response, both from the ideologues and the Victorian government, it seems strange. I mean, affirmative therapy as the only legitimate response to gender incongruence surely is extraordinarily dangerous. For one thing, the watch and wait method, which allows the course of puberty to, as it's shown in the literature, resolve the dissonance experienced by young people in four out of five cases. North of 80% of kids who have gender dysphoria will see that resolve if puberty takes place. What that means is that four out of five people could go on to accept their own body and live healthy lives and relationships into their adulthood without taking life-altering drugs or without enduring life-altering and irreversible surgeries that would render them infertile. Why? Surely we have to ask ourselves why would the government and these ideologues not want the majority of those suffering from gender incongruity to leave behind forever the poor mental health outcomes that are so endemic of the transgender community as they enter adulthood? It seems strange. And Nancy Piercy asks, why is it considered acceptable to carve up a person's body to match their inner sense of self, but bigoted to try and help them change their sense of self to match their body? But her question is largely ignored, as are many others. And whilst the movement holds together conflicting ideologies, the trans community continues to increase in number and cultural influence. Now, no doubt some of them sign up voluntarily to be part of the revolution and to tear down the male-female binary. They're disciples of the new gender ideology. But there is an entire generation of young people who simply through no fault of their own find themselves somewhere that they would never thought they would be. One study recently in the New York Times describes how from 2017 to 2020, the number of people identifying as transgender, particularly amongst young people, has tripled over a three-year span. The article goes on to say that those who are trans-affirming, they put this down to simply the social acceptability of coming out. It's okay now, and so more people, rather than hiding it, are actively open about it. But when you review the specific demographics of who's involved and the growing number of detransition cases in the aftermath of people pursuing this line of thinking, it seems to tell a different story. You see, where pre-2018, the majority of people presenting with gender dysphoria were male and in kindergarten, now the overwhelming majority of people presenting with gender dysphoria are young women, teenage girls, who are doing that in large peer groups, a statistically unlikely reality. Which leads to the concern that perhaps something akin to a social contagion is taking place amongst a younger generation. That girls who feel lost, without any ultimate meaning in their life, young women who are dissatisfied with their bodies in a hypersexualized age of social media, who have become disillusioned with the core of their relationships, that these girls may be being radicalized by peer pressure and trans influences on social media platforms. 
Now, in the past few years, in wrestling with how to love my transgender neighbors, I have read nearly a dozen books from secular and Christian thinkers right across the professional spectrum, psychiatrists, doctors, philosophers. I've listened to the stories of those people who have run headlong down the transgender path only to find in the end it didn't offer them the fulfillment that they were seeking. And then to see the thousands of ex-patients that are now suing the Tavistock Gender Clinic in the UK for its indiscriminate medical treatment of kids and teenagers who identified as transgender. And how the very founders of the John Hopkins University Hospital for decades discontinued the practice of gender reassignment surgery simply because they found it was a failed enterprise that ended up carving up too many lives. And some of the aftermath of the decisions that have been made, particularly for young people, it just makes you weep. If you're listening to this and you feel yourself out of place in your own body, my heart genuinely bleeds for you. And as much as these observations might feel like they're cutting away at a story that you cling to, please know that is not my goal. For the wounds of a friend are only ever intended to heal. And it's precisely into this cultural war of human words and ideologies on a subject so personal that God's word comes to speak. And God's word always seeks to bring light and to give life. So what does the Christian story teach about gender? What would Jesus say to the trans community? And so often as Jesus does in response to a question, I think he would tell a story, a better story when it comes to our gender and identity, when it comes to freedom and fulfillment. And it's a story that spans every page of the Bible, right from the first words of Genesis to the last pages of Revelation. And first, the Bible says that gender theology begins in creation theology. Genesis 1, 26 to 27 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You see, the first thing that the Bible says about our identity is that it is rooted in the fixed reality that we are created by God, rather than in the shifting sands of our feelings, which so often change across time. As we all face the inescapable question of identity, who am I, man asks, God's word thunders back from the very first pages of Scripture. It says, you are my image bearer, earthly kids to a heavenly father, and you are deeply loved. And following on from this, the Bible teaches that gender identity is essentially embodied. Christianity has a high view of bodies, that maleness and femaleness is actually based in our biology, and that gender is a binary. Like the medical literature in the creation story, there is no hint of a third sex, or the notion that sex is something that can be divorced from our gender. Humans aren't simply haunted machines, but are designed to be a psychosomatic whole, a unity of body and mind, where we shouldn't try and tear asunder that which God has joined together. And this is why in Psalm 139, David says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David doesn't just say that God knits our bodies together. He says that God knits us together. And this embodied gender binary is part of God's good design. 
where in the Genesis story, it moves seamlessly from humanity being created male and female in Genesis 1, let's say biological sex, to then the wedding of a man and a woman in Genesis 2, gender identity. There is no divorce. Second, gender theology doesn't stay in the garden. You see, this design phase of our existence, it covers just two chapters out of the 1189 in the Bible. And as the Christian story continues to unfold, we experience what theologians describe as the fall, a space-time event that has had distorting effects on all creation. The creational model may be Genesis 1 and 2, but now we live in the shadow of Genesis 3. And things are messy between Eden and eternity, especially when it comes to our perceptions of identity and our experience of our bodies. Now, it is interesting to note that even after Eden, the Bible continues to affirm a gender binary of male and female. Whether it's the author of Genesis chapter 5 or in the words of Jesus himself, both restate this creation model. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? So in Jesus' eyes, whatever the fall has disordered, it still hasn't obliterated Eden. So what has then sin done to God's good design? Well, the Bible teaches that our physiology, our bodies, and our psychology, our thinking are affected, our bodies and our minds. Here in Matthew 19, on Jesus' longest discourse involving sex, marriage, divorce, gender, and our bodies, even after affirming God's design for a gender binary, He recognizes the reality of those who were eunuchs from birth. Now, hot take, this is biblical language to describe those who would have been born in the ancient world with any number of intersex conditions, disorders of sexual development. So if that spells out your story, Jesus doesn't pretend like you don't exist. He sees you too. And in the Christian story, whether Philip the Ethiopian eunuch or in the promises of Isaiah, The Christian story has a beautiful account of the unique inclusion in God's purposes of those who are intersex. And in addition to disordered bodies, which to differing degrees, let's be honest, we all experience sort of strange relationship with our bodies. The fall also means that we have disordered minds. Romans chapter 1 speaks about how since the fall, our minds have become darkened and our thinking futile. Jeremiah 79 tells us that the desires of our heart They can be a poisoned well. And this plays out everywhere. Our thinking and our feelings, let's be honest, they get mixed up. We all, at times, wrongly interpret reality. And painfully, for some of us, our minds are susceptible to even more serious psychological conditions. Things like gender dysphoria as one amongst a penelope of mental health conditions. Which leads to the final point. The Christian story says that our ultimate hope is in Jesus and the world to come, where the dissonance between who we are and who we were created to be will finally disappear. You see, the gospel that Jesus brings is not an affirmation of our self-made identity. He offers us an entirely new one. At Calvary, the cross of Jesus Christ is simultaneously the greatest critique and compliment of us as human beings. It says that we were so damaged by evil, so captive to its temptations and deceptions, that Jesus had to die from us. And yet, we were so profoundly known by God, warts and all, to the depths, and still loved to the skies, that He would die for us. And so as we are navigating through life, trying to carve out for us an identity or a value 
what we need to recognize is that there is no greater worth than the one that was established for us, being intricately created by God, the master craftsman, and at the cross where Jesus purchased us with an eternal and crimson currency. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it this way, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's why Jesus is good news. He offers you a foundation for who you are that's based on your Creator and the cross. And there is nothing greater to secure the value and dignity of who you are. And in addition, Jesus is good news because he offers a profound and future hope. You see, one day when he returns, just like he rose from the dead, from the grave in a glorified body, we're told so too will we. That in this future experience in God's presence, all of the discomfort within our bodies will pass away. The final two chapters in the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22, they speak of a time when God will wipe away all the effects of sin for those who have trusted in Jesus. Revelation 21.4 even says that God will become so near to us as to wipe away the very real tears that we've cried through our pain. You see, in God's future world, the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more death, no more decay, no more distortion, no more disorder, no more dissonance. The old order is past. Behold, he comes to make all things new. And in the meantime, what Jesus does between our new identity and this bright future in eternity is he invites us to walk with him the path of Christian discipleship. And it's a path that leads to life, however hard it may be. Because as we follow Jesus, it's not that we get rid of all of the categories and constraints, simply freedom from It's that we embrace the right constraints for which we were ultimately created, freedom for, like a fish to water or a train to tracks. So if you're wondering, if I become a Christian, is that going to fix what I'm experiencing? No. Becoming a Christian won't instantly remove in this life the shadow of Genesis chapter 3 with all of its temptations or all of its afflictions. The truth is, in this life, we will never feel quite at home in our bodies. But given what the Bible teaches about gender, about it being embodied, it makes sense nonetheless to view our bodies as a clue to our calling in the world. That we're to image God by being male or female. And because for some of us, given the dissonance, this will be a hard path, Jesus offers some beautiful, tender promises. He promises to the weary that if you come to him, you will find rest for your soul. He promises to the lonely that if you come to him, you will find family in the church. You see, unlike causes which gather around a common shared hurt or a pursuit and the rage for their own recognition, the church, it isn't a homogenous club built around grudges. It is a glorious bunch of misfits who have together found their home in Jesus are people with their own stories, with their own brokenness, with their own sin that they bring to the table, and yet they have together found grace and forgiveness in Him. So again, if you're wondering, where do you belong? Where do you fit in the world? I welcome you to the church of Jesus Christ with a welcome from Jesus Christ Himself. Everyone here, we all carry our own stuff. But the benefit of being part of God's church is that we never have to carry that affliction alone. 
and to empower us to walk a narrow path. Jesus promises that to those who believe in him, he will pour out the Holy Spirit who stirs in us not only the supreme value of God's words in the midst and tides of our culture and our feelings, but that he also gives us the strength to obey God's voice. And given that the end goal of this life is to become more like Jesus, even some of the struggle, the disorder in our bodies, the disorder in our minds, can be used by God as a vehicle to serve his ends, bringing about who we're ultimately meant to become. That's the Christian story on gender. We live in the shadow of a Genesis 3 fall, seeking to be faithful to a Genesis 1 design, waiting for a Revelation 21 hope, and all in the presence of Jesus, who accepts us as we are, but then calls us to pick up a cross and follow him. But moving then to some practical application. Amidst our cultural moment, how can Christians love our transgender neighbors and navigate the various conversations concerning transgender rights? Well, let me apply a few things from the Christian story. Number one, from creation, trans people are real people. As a Christian, we should see every human being as bearing the image of God. And this language of imago Dei, this belief in the equality and value and dignity of all people everywhere at all stages of development is exactly what has undergirded the rise in Western civilization of what we call human rights. The language of the 1948 Human Universal Declaration of Rights, it was baptized in this language. You can't escape this bedrock of dignity that the Christian story offers. And what that means is trans people are real people. They are worthy of dignity, of love, of respect, because they bear God's image. And given that the UN Declaration spells out about 30 base human rights, Christians should be the first, given the suffering and struggle of many in the transgender community throughout the century, sometimes at our own hands, to step in and advocate for the way that those rights may have been trampled on, to bring an end to discrimination, to bring an end to bully, to bring an end to abuse and to violence that's so often faced by them, resulting in a whole range of poorer outcomes. We should stand up for the rights of transgender people as people. Number two, we need to stand up for the fact that gender th- the gender ideology, it undermines God's good design and leads to confusion. You see, that God created the world's with a good design, that in his common grace that leads to the flourishing of all people everywhere, we need to be wary when any ideology seeks to tear away the beauty and dignity and goodness of male and female, of men and women, and of the unique partnership of those two in marriage. And so we, I think, in the public space, need to advocate for the common good of all people in our culture, even amidst a pluralistic democracy, by saying that I don't think it's wise for us to be teaching this new gender ideology to children, to be exploring and to participate in changing and thinking about and experimenting with who they should become when they're so impressionable and to start taking steps that can have irreversible consequences at such a young age before they're able to comprehend the weight of those choices. I think Christians, while standing alongside transgender people and pursuing Human rights need to stand against the new gender ideology and the way that can bring harm upon an entire generation of young people. Number three, 
Christians should, in light of our recognition of the fall, be dripping with grace. This is not a time for us to stand on a high mountain and point the finger of judgment upon people who think differently than us. Like the Lord Jesus himself, this is a moment for us to leave whatever heights we think we should possess and instead to descend into the dirt, to find people where they are in their struggle, to express the same overwhelming grace and forgiveness that we all have for the sin and stories that we bear in our own lives. Christians should be marked by compassion in her posture towards the transgender community. Number four, Christians should learn to inhabit the shadow of the fall. Moral reasoning and trying to think through ethics in any given situation is complex. There is no universal policy that's going to apply to every single experience of a transgender person or of bathrooms or of schools or of any of these things. We need divine wisdom on how for the sake of those who are vulnerable and for the sake of all people to find as much space as we can to be able to recognize that sometimes it's the lesser of two evils. In the same way that Jesus says of divorce, that it was not so from the beginning and yet divorce was given for the hardness of, uh, because of the hardness of the human heart in regards to sin, what should we do in situations where a person's gender identity and their biological sex create such tension that it makes them want to kill themselves? Should we just deny that reality? Or should we perhaps, for the sake of their own story, maybe lean in, enter in to pronouns or to language simply in the hope of being able to lead them out of that story, to alleviate the intensity of that dissonance in the hopes of being able to share with them a better story? This is a moment for real wisdom. There isn't a ton that is really clear-cut at the biggest level on these questions. Number five, Christians should be a prophetic voice of reconciliation in partisan times. The tribalism on left and right in our culture is ugly, and it's resulting in a callousness of the human heart towards the other, a demonization of people who sit across the aisle. The calling of Christians is to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, to be agents of reconciliation. To, in our language, in our posture, find ways of being able to affirm and challenge in equal measure and to do so with a humble footing, so that we can serve the prophetic role that we're meant to, not simply being used by either side of the political spectrum as a base for their votes. And number six, gender stereotypes are dangerous in that they can undermine the full beauty of God's family. It is true that if we sociologically spell out common traits amongst men and women, physiologically and psychologically, there are genuine differences. Every attempt to eradicate these through social engineering has failed and only ended up heightening those differences. Men and women are different, but that's in the collective. Some women are more masculine in the traits that they tend to exhibit. Some men are more feminine in the traits that they tend to exhibit. And so where Christians fall into the same trap of enforcing rigid gender stereotypes and celebrating only a particular view of what it means to be a man or a woman in our gatherings, in our community, we can actually tend to alienate those people on the extremes, on the margins. So that a ton of men might be sitting here thinking, well, if all men do on men's nights is steak and adventures, that's not really what I like to do. Maybe I'm not really a man. Or you're a woman and you like doing extreme sports. 
Maybe I'm not really all that feminine. These are deeply damaging messages that we send when we reduce the beauty of maleness and femaleness simply to a few offhand gender stereotypes. And so we need to capture a way of being able to speak of a man as simply an adult human male and a woman as simply an adult human female. And a Christian man is an adult human male that follows Jesus. And a Christian female is an adult human female who follows Jesus. Tear away as much of the unhelpful dross as we can to let the beauty of God's diversity shine through. Now, there is so much to say on so many more questions, but we're out of time. And in a moment, you'll get a short break. Keep sending in your questions for the Q&A. But before I do, there's something that I think is necessary. I want to sincerely apologize to the transgender community. We may have radically different views on gender and on our bodies. But the church has been so slow to hear your cries for justice. And at times so unlike Jesus in the ways that we have shared our views. Christians should not be waiting for the secular state to spell out transgender rights when the Lord Jesus, our King, has already expressed them in Scripture. And so if you feel out of place in your own body, Here's what you should expect as your rights from a Christian. You have the right to free expression. By giving you free will, the Lord has ensured that. He's imbued you with the will. You're to use it. You have the right to be loved, to be listened to, to be valued, to be dignified, even to be cared for. You have the right to support over the long haul, knowing that this is not something that will be fixed quickly. We're with you. Like Jesus, a good shepherd, caring for, tending to those whom he loves. That's our role as Christians. You have the right to truth, to hear God's take on your lived experience. And most importantly, you have a right to the gospel. Because Jesus Christ is indiscriminate with the invitation that he gives. Come unto me, all you who are heavy burdened and weary laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Jesus welcomes you with open arms. I only pray that if you've been harmed by Christians, that you may forgive us for where we have failed in giving you what you are due. And so for those that will hear this, whether now or in the future, I want to offer a heartfelt prayer. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, would you forgive us, your church, for the ways that we have been blind to the pain of transgender people? that we haven't sought to stand in their shoes or listen to their stories or advocate for justice where they have faced abuse and discrimination. We are ashamed that so often we have spoken Christian truth but failed to speak with a Christian accent of gentleness and respect. Help the church to be more like Jesus, sharing truth but dripping with grace. And we want to pray that for those who have heard the invitation of Jesus to a new birth, a new identity, a new hope, may you point them to their need for forgiveness. May you lead them to the cross, that in Jesus they might find life in all its fullness. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Um... 
Thank you, Dan. We've got a few minutes now for, for questions. Um, please gra grab a seat. Um, we've, got, we've got a bunch of questions. We've got a bunch of questions from 8.30 we didn't get through. Uh, there's been some questions that have, have come through. We, we, yeah, we don't have heaps of time. Um, but just to flag, um, in a few weeks' time, uh, October 6, we're going to have a night, night with Dan. Uh, we're going to go public place, the pub, and we're going to hang out. And um, not necessarily on transgender, but Dan's going to be speaking. With, there'll be heaps of time for questions. There'll be more information about cool. that. Really looking forward to Me that. Me too. Um, but let's, uh, let's get cracking with a few of of these questions. Um, so this one, uh, this one for us from the service. Uh, if a Christian can be prosecuted for praying, can a transgender trainer, was the word, uh, be prosecuted for pushing transgender onto my children? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. And uh, I, I, what we're going to find out is the way in which these laws will be applied in the years to come. We have no cases yet being put forward, and it's usually by precedent that case law pushes forward. And so it'll be interesting to see which people really want to use this law as a cudgel to be able to bring others into submission. Certainly in terms of the language, the idea of a practice which would change or intended to change a person's gender identity I think there's probably some room that you could argue that as well. And so uh, I wouldn't advocate the idea of using the law to try and oppose transgender ideologues. I'd more be hoping that common sense will win out and the government will realise this is probably a bit of an overreach in the application uh, of their language. Um, but yeah, I, I think it definitely opens the door to something like that. And, and uh, as well, like, uh, one of the things we need to be aware of is we do live in a... Uh, in, in a battle that there's an ideology battle, but there's a spiritual battle. And um, looking at this in, in gospel communities this week, that we are we're all discipled by the world, uh, we're all influenced by the world, um, and so there's all kinds of messages. Like was it ten thousand ads a day? We see all kinds of messages, and many of them are very anti-gospel. And so we can't hide what's been um, thrown at us. We can't yeah. hide what's been thrown at our children. Um, but what does it look like for us, for the church, to be? raising and discipling each other, even from a young age? Yeah. Um, and what does it look like for us as families to take uh, extra ownership on that? Um, but a lot of complexity there. Um, what else we've, have we got? Um, oh, you talked to... Yeah, <laughs> this is a question. Um, so do you disagree with men's and women's ministry? It's a great question, and I'd say absolutely not. Um, I would just want to encourage you to think about a breadth to men's and women's ministry, that it doesn't become reductive. Uh, it tends to be the same kinds of things get done over and over again, and it sends subtle messages. Uh, my friend Sam Albury, who is always, as far as he's aware, been same-sex attracted, speaks so helpfully into this area and, and to others. But he remembers back when he was a new Christian attending his church that every year there would be a church picnic. And after the picnic, it was expected that the men would go and play football and while the women sat around and chatted. And he didn't want to go and play football. He wanted to sit around and talk. Uh, and yet he was made to feel incredibly uncomfortable simply because he didn't fit what was expected of the men on that particular kind of event. And so I just think it's helpful to recognize if through our subtle messaging we say to be a man is to be a raw, meat-eating adventurer who wrestles bears on his, on his uh, spare time, uh, and being a woman is about being a homemaker who likes having conversations, uh, you're, go you're going to realize that that just doesn't square with the desires and expectations of a lot of men and women, particularly those who exist more in the 10% on either side of the big bell curves in, uh, in sociological data. And so I just think we need to be cautious in how we do men and women's ministries, not to send subtle messages that some people aren't welcome. Mm. And, and if we look through scripture, there is um, diversity in how 
different men and women of the Bible are, are portrayed. There are women who um, who stab tent pegs through temples of, of, of men. <laughs> and there's, there's women in Proverbs 31 who are hard at work and industrious and so different to that, that kind of that stereotypical masculine and femininity. However, yet, church, we, we are committed to men's and women's ministry and, and uh, the Bible uh, speaks highly of that and there's a beautiful place for older women to be speaking to the lives of younger women, older men, um, younger men likewise. So we're committed to that. Yeah. We're not going to can our men's and women's um, night. We're doing it in a few weeks' time that we're sort of in place of gospel community. But um, just to, to clarify that as well. So um, uh, maybe a couple more questions. Um, uh, so many questions. How do I choose? Um, should Christian schools confirm, sorry, affirm and accept transgender students? Should Christian schools affirm and, and accept transgender students? Yeah, I appreciate that question. Uh, probably outside my purview uh, in terms of being qualified to give any shoulds. Uh, mostly I encourage good conscience and wisdom seeking. Uh, I know some Christian schools where I speak that do go along with the gender identity of a given student, even though in their teaching they don't affirm it uh, in the broad vision of things. So this is exactly what I meant around the difference between policy and a personal need for wisdom in any given case. That sometimes a policy will end up doing harm to an individual person. And is there a way in which we can uh, make space where wisdom dictates for a uh, greater compassion and allowance uh, of someone's story playing out a little bit, um, that we keep them close in a hope that they would encounter more of the Christian story and the goodness of God in a way that might lead them out of what they currently believe and how they currently interpret their, their life. I guess um, the reality is there are a lot of students that this now represents. And if Christian schools end up cutting them off from entrance uh, I think we can have a diversity of what they publicly teach and then what they uh, also privately or personally allow for uh, that would mean more students come to see who Jesus is in the lives of teachers and come to hear the gospel on a weekly basis and in so doing see that maybe Jesus is worth trusting and men thinking maybe Jesus is worth trusting with my feelings, with my gender identity, with my future. Mm. Uh, I think that would be a path that could be redemptive, um, but I do think that this is a, a point where individual schools need to, to learn wisdom here. Mm. Um, yeah. and, and, there, and there's a difference between affirming and accepting. Uh, you can welcome someone um, into uh, your community without affirming and agreeing with everything they say as well. You can be committed to, to the Christian doctrine without... Um, and yet including others who maybe not agree with that being part of that space yeah. as well. And we hope our church is a place we recognize there's going to be a diversity of people in this room and uh, you might not agree with um, everything that God's Word says, but we are so welcome here. We'd love you to keep exploring Jesus who we believe is the hope and has all the, ans yeah. and has all the answers. Um, finally, um, and, and look, we can talk more about this and, um, and flesh this out and put it on our Facebook group, but what are some good resources, um, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, uh, both secular and theologically based for people to check out. What have you found helpful? What 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 might we find helpful for just further yeah, there's exploration? A, there's a like really lesser known personality named Guy Mason, uh, who's done a couple of sermons in this area um, that are worth kind of checking out as more of a, a public application. But in terms of um, actual books that I'd encourage, 
Uh, There's a few. To think about this from a biblical perspective, my friend Sam's book on what God has to say about our bodies, I think is really helpful. Mm. Because it doesn't reduce the conversation simply to gender dysphoria. It speaks about what's our view of our bodies in general and how to make sense of that across the Christian story from creation through fall, through the redemption, and finally the great hope of what will come with glorified bodies. And uh, and I just found it tremendously helpful in, uh, in thinking about this in the lens of the Christian story. Uh, in terms of more cultural understanding, there's a couple of books that would be really helpful to track down. Um, Mark Yarhouse is himself a Christian, but spends his time devoted to looking at emerging gender identities, his language, uh, as well as religious identities. And so this is his wheelhouse. He's got all of the experience to be able to um, provide helpful summaries of the state of the conversation, the development of statistics, uh, and ways forward. So um, he's got a couple of books back from 2015, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, and then brand new one, Emerging Gender Identities. Um, Both of those would be worth checking out. Mm, Great. And uh, you also quoted Carl Truman. He's written a book called The Rise and Triumph of Modern, Modern Self. I found it really helpful for just even understanding how a culture has arrived where we are. And there's yeah. a, a, a more recent version as well. I forget the title. That, that's the summary of that, if uh, a 400-page book intimidates you. Yeah. Um, Could I actually yeah. say, there's, uh, there's one other website that's helpful. Um, it's called livingout.org. And it's actually uh, developed by an, a number of same-sex attracted uh, Church of England ministers uh, where they tell their own stories, but also some transgender um, ones or people who have experienced gender dysphoria are also helpfully sharing their own personal stories and fielding a whole lot of questions that people have in and around gender dysphoria, gender identity, Mm. uh, and the Christian story. And so that's more of a personal take, which can be really useful. Mm, Great. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.